race on yesterday. Brent's are here. And uh, it was a, yeah, children's church. That's it. Children's church. You need to go. We have some things to talk about. Uh-huh. If you want to go to uh, Benson's and I think Sean's are back there. So head to Children's Church. Enjoy your time. Special, again, a shout out to the people. And uh, next year, how about we have a real province team? We had a real province team. But to any of you who want to walk or, or run, it's a great event and it returns money to the community. It's a good way to give back and enjoy yourself doing it. You'll get in on a picture. Um, and I beat Liz, which was good. Yeah, anyway, I heard her footsteps coming up behind She ran uh, twice as far as I did, though, so that's uh, the other thing. The second thing, uh, I want to thank uh, Murph and Dawn. Recently, they um, uh, were at a book show and gave me this Bible. It's, a, uh, it's called the Ancient Faith Study Bible. And if any of you are interested in a Bible, uh, it, it has commentary in it from the early church fathers. Uh, so the first 500 years of church history, and it, it gives a really good window into some of those things. Um, see the gospel bookstore on that. Please turn in your copies of the, of the scriptures to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10. The title of the sermon this morning is Restrictive or Empowering? Um, wait, didn't we just have that title? Yeah. Uh, Pastor Chris spoke two weeks ago using the same title, and I could not get away from the title. And by the way, I, I was able to listen to that, and I just want to bless him for sticking very closely to Scripture and, and being committed to Scripture, which is what we will attempt to do this morning. Um, so the, the two are meant to be connected in that way, uh, the two sermons, and it is a joy to preach together in some of these things. When we talk about 1 Corinthians 11, we often feel we have these feelings that we bring. Uh, all of us do it because of our culture. And we can't, don't deny it, because if you deny it, you're saying that you've not been impacted by our world. Some of us have uh, this kind of, yeah, let's hear more about, you know. And some of us have this kind of, oh, no, here we go again. Or um, maybe some of us have this kind of ambivalence. There, okay, there's something here, but man, we've heard so much about this. Or too much about this over our years. How about we, we kind of step back and, and take kind of a fresh look at some of these things. And we do it with more than just 1 Corinthians 11. We do it with other portions of Scripture that that we care about deeply. So this morning, I just, uh, let's set some context here. The church, the early church is having um, a fair bit of difficulty integrating people. So there, there are all these people coming to the gospel of Jesus, being baptized, and they're from many different worlds and nations. Now in their world, like ours, there are, uh, there are people tend to be ranked by their, by their economic class or their skin color, their nationalities. For the Roman people, there were two classes of people in the world. There were Romans, and all the rest were barbarians. 
That's literally what they called them, barbarians. Rome thought of itself as the most cultured world that there was. So there was Romans and barbarians. And to the Roman people, it was black and white. You were either Roman or a barbarian. Jews were barbarians in their minds. In the Jewish world, there are two classes of people, Jews and Gentiles. Now, each of those groups had certain ways of dressing and certain ways of carrying themselves, not just dress, but how they carried themselves that conveyed where you were at. And within, even within the Roman world, there were the elite, um, and then there were the not-so-elite, you, know, you know, just like our world. And we have these markers. They, have, they had markers just like we do um, that, that set it apart. I thought of this more. I thought about yesterday that I should go to, I don't know, I don't know what's fashionable. I don't know what's expensive and fashionable. Shoes. I, 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 what are really expensive shoes? Maybe shoes aren't a thing anymore. I don't, I should follow up on this. What could I wear that could really reflect that I'm wealthy? Louis Vuitton. Okay, who's that? Is he Amish? No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, or um, uh, jewelry is kind of a marker of that as well in today's world. Or, yeah, what else? What is it? You have to talk it loud. Lo- oh, Rolex. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Uh. Or, I, Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. It puts us in a, see, see, I have an iPad, an iPhone, a Mac, and an iWatch. Puts me in a class of people, doesn't it? Kind of an elite class of people. Uh, uh, you PCers are just not. You know, it's, it's we do this. We do it all the time. We tend to grade people like that. And the early church, the, the early church, uh, and, and particularly Corinth, wrestled with it. Because Corinth is the melting pot of the western part of the Roman Empire, or the, that part of the Roman Empire. It's on an isthmus, three miles wide, and ships would cross there, and all the, it was a center of shipping. And so. All these cultures and nationalities come together. It's kind of like the New York City of its day. So it's a melting pot. And here is this church there. And, and they, they, they take seriously Jesus' call to take the gospel to all the nations. Remember Jesus in the Great Commission, which we're going to come back to in a minute. Great Commission says, all power is given to me, so I give it to you. Take the gospel into all the world. This is my translation baptizing them, to, and then teaching them all things. And the early church thought that was their call. They took it very seriously. And so particularly at places like Corinth, many people from many different nationalities were becoming Christians. And in addition to that, in the Roman world, there were the free Romans and then the slaves. And, and they did not get... The, the, the Romans, the slaves, had owners by that very... Ner- name, you know, slave, you have an owner, somebody who owns you, and that person has the power of life and death over you. If he says, remove their head, no one's going to argue. You get your head removed. It's hard to live without the head. So so it's, it's like they have the power of life and death. And in this fledgling young church are all these people. And there's free Romans who kind of view the others as Barbarians who don't wear Rolexes and Louis Vuitton. And then on the other side, you know, there's the Jews. The Jews are the ultimate Mac people. 
They've got it down. And, and the Jews look at all the other people and say, well, but they're Gentiles. They just, we're just a little better than them. Now, um, so the big issue that the church faces is this kind of integration of all these worlds, and it's in our world today. In case you think we're any different, think about how you tend to view people. Well, they are, and then you put the name there. In, in the economy of God's world, there are two classes of people, saved and the unsaved. That's it. And when the saved people gather, when the people of Jesus gather, there's supposed to be an equality there that is much bigger than anything we've ever experienced. Now, in the Roman view, clothing and grooming um, displayed one's place in the socioeconomic world. So how you dressed showed where you were in the world. does in our world, too, in case you haven't figured it out. If I came wearing a Rolex one morning, you'd say, did you get a raise? Or whatever. Or Louis Vuitton, which I don't know, whatever they do. Uh, and, and in the Roman world, they had a particular interest in hair. Hair. Like, you know, hair. Or lack of it. And saw it as a means to separate the real Romans from the barbaric. So Roman men, uh, elite Roman men, you know, the big shots, visited the barber every day. This is the, this is the beginning, I'm, I'm being serious here, this is the beginning of the barbering trade. You know, the stripe pole, there are also doctors, and sometimes pulled teeth, but the, the Roman men would visit the barber every day. And because a sign of an elite Roman man was to be clean-shaven and have a haircut and... We'll talk about that. So um, it created a more militaristic uh, appearance. And women had ornate hairstyles that indicated their, their wealth. And for both men and women, only the elite could veil their heads. And Roman women veiled their heads. Uh, not, not slaves or poor class people. Elite Roman women veiled their heads. They would have these ornate hairstyles and then veil their heads. Roman men, only the very elite would veil their heads. Um, the emperor would wear either a laurel wreath or something like that. And that was a sign that he had, had power. And so only elite Roman men could wear something on their heads. Now, Jews, remember, there's two, the, the, the church is made up of these kind of two influences, Roman and Jewish. And the Jews, for Jewish men, the, their turban was everything. They'd wrap this thing around their heads, and that was their sign of elite status in their world. Um, A veiled head signaled to the world around you that you had power over your own head. That you had the, the power to control your own head. No one had control of you. Which is really fascinating, isn't it? And, and, uh, I got kind of excited when I thought about that in relation to this past. So this young church is having all these problems, and then Paul comes along. And in case you think that I'm out of whack, in Roman, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, I'll, I'll read it to you. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is a rivalry among you. And the rivalries, scholars, and, and it's true, are, are built around these, co- co- these common uh, rivalries that were happening in their world. And the Christians just translate it, and so the, the rich Christians would say, well, but we're just a little better, so we'll do, we'll do this. And, you know, those poor, yeah, they can get, they can have Jesus, but, you know, and, and Paul says, you know what, that is not the way of the kingdom. And for the rest of 1 Corinthians, he spends time saying, there are these divisions among you, let's bring it together. And it's very practical. In 1 Corinthians, I'm going to begin to read in verse 10, uh, chapter 10, in verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek it their own good, but the good of, other pers- of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of the conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Stop. Okay? Eat everything that is in the meat market. Now, the Jews... They have all these dietary laws. And Paul comes along and says, just eat it. Don't argue and just eat it. Because that's not the point anymore. That's not what separates you anymore. If any unbeliever invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. But if someone says to you, this food is from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. Stop again. So in that world, they would, uh, they would have idol, the idol worship. They would sacrifice animals and that, that that meat would then be consecrated. In the Roman world, they thought when they ingested that meat, when they ate that meat, they were taking part in that God's life. So he's saying, but if you are invited to non-believers and they say, this meat was offered to Apollos, then don't eat it because this is a, it's bigger... And not for your own sake, you could eat it and be okay, but for the sake of the one who told you that it's offered to Apollos, because they know you belong to Jesus. And you're going to water down your witness if you eat that meat. In, in essence, Paul is saying, you're looking out for their good by saying, you know what, I can't. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? So whatever, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as also I am trying to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that many may be saved. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything. You hold fast to the ordinance just as I delivered them to you. Ordinances. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. 
But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her head be covered. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So to women is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of women, but women for the sake of man. This is why the women should... Woman should have the, a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of women. Of woman, For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. Now, in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And he goes on, and he talks about communion. And... Um, when you read the passage like that and have this understanding, it suddenly takes a different meaning. And, it, and so I'm going to try to stick pretty close to the passage here again, but I'd like to bring out three things that I saw in this passage. Number one, that there is a radical equality in Jesus Christ among all classes of people. Here you have a gathering of slaves and free Romans and Jews and barbarians and Gentiles, and men and women, they're gathered together, and there is an equality here. And Paul says, reflect that equality by doing this. So if the elite Roman men and the elite Jewish men both veiled their heads when they worshipped, it was a sign that they were the elite. And Paul comes along and says, you know what? Take off that turban. Take it off. Take off your laurel wreath. Take it off. You gather with unveiled heads because you're all one. You are supposed to be like the slaves with whom you have the power of life and death over. Be like them in this meeting. And it is apparent from, from reading this and from studying this passage that when the church at Corinth together gathered together, the men were called to take their turbans off, their hats off, and the women were called to veil their heads when they gathered for worship. So suddenly, I love this, suddenly Paul sets it all on its head. You know, when you set something upside down, it says, men, take them off. When you gather, there should be this kind of equality that doesn't reflect. So, so, so um, if Chris, I'll pick on him, if he would wear a turban to church, and, and Dwendal doesn't, because Dwendal is a slave. I, I'm not saying anything, but just, just put, put people to it. Lower class. He's not, he's not allowed to wear one during the week. And so Chris, as a way of reflecting that they're on equal ground in Christ, takes his off. In the same way, wealthy women wore veils, slaves and prostitutes and poor women. Slaves and prostitutes. So, so in the Roman world, anyone who wasn't Roman is barbaric and therefore they have no right to veil their heads. Women. Um, if a... This is really fascinating. If a woman of wealth did not wear her veiling when she was out on the streets and she was accosted by a man, sexually harassed by a man, she had no claim in court. She had to wear her veiling in order to have claim in court. 
Her veiling protected her from evil men who wanted to do bad things to her. And, and so Paul says, in the same way, when you gather together, now you women, how about, how about you all wear veils? And, and you can imagine this kind of uproar from the rich uh, Roman women saying, What? You mean the slave that I work, that I own? Yeah, that one. Because at that place, at the place where you gather together in public worship and public prayer, there is an equality there that is meant to be reflected in the way we think, the way we live, the way we act, the way we dress. That's what the passage is saying. And also, this is another fascinating fact that if temple prostitutes weren't veiled, they were shaved, they shaved their heads, actually. But priestesses, so women priests in the Roman system, wore veils. And Paul is saying, and by the way, Chris said this last Sunday, and I want to reiterate this, when he's talking about every, everyone who prays or prophesies, that word, it's in the public realm. So the word prophesy is not only to foretell, like Deborah and, and some of those did, but it's also to speak. It is used interchangeably with preach in, the rest of, in other places in the New Testament. It means to, to tell forth the gospel way. And so we should put as much emphasis in saying that there is a call here for men and women to pray and shut the live stream. no. To pray and foretell. See, it's even hard for me to, to say it. Pray and preach. If they do it with this kind of respect that God calls for in that equality. There's not a higher one or a lower one. They're all equal. So there is a radical equality. And this passage is about saying, you know what? There's not slave nor free. There's not man or woman. But in Christ, all are one which Paul says in Galatians 3 then. By having the Corinthian Christians women veil according or, or the men to unveil in their worship, Paul is saying that they should identify by their gender rather than their social class, which leads me to the, my next point. There's also something in this passage about a creation principle that we were created man and woman. Our world is trying to bring those two together and make it one. You know, all the alphabet soup that's out there, there is an M and a W, man and woman, because that's how God created them. And it does not mean that women are, are less than or men are superior. It simply means that God first created Adam, then he created Eve, and together the two reflect the fullness of God in creation. Together the two reflect the image of God in creation. Which is beautiful. Men do not reflect the image of God. Men and women reflect the image of God. And Paul is saying that when you gather together, there, there is a... There, worship, when you worship together, and this is where, where I want this to lead to, is, is we are to worship as male and female. And that's reflected in the way they dress and the way they operated in the worship service. And it, it is clear from the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament that God created us male and female, and that both have an equal place in the body of Christ and the life of the church. 
And yet, contrary to much of the way that the world thinks about this, that gender difference is to be celebrated when we gather to worship. And I, I, do, not, I do not handle very well this men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing. Because I'm as hard to understand as my wife. I'm as mysterious to my wife as she is mysterious to me. That, isn't, that mysteriousness isn't because I'm a man or that she's a woman. It is because we are human and created in the image of God. And therefore there is a deep mystery about us that is being, un, that is being revealed as we grow together. You know, there's all these books that have been written. They're money-making schemes. Men are from women. Uh, men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. Uh, men are like spaghetti. Women are like... No, men are like pancakes. Women are like waffles. You know, whatever. I don't even remember which way it is. Waffles and spaghetti. What? Yeah. Okay? So, so yeah, there might be some of that there. But that, that it's, it's not the focus. The focus of this passage is saying that women bring a unique perspective, and men bring a unique perspective. And that difference is to be celebrated by the way we operate, by the way we dress, by the way we operate, by, by being feminine and masculine in our world. And there's something beautiful about that. And, and it, it is primarily written in the perspective of public worship. So here, I, I wrote this out. Uh, a part of this is from N.T. Wright, then I wrote some of my own thoughts, and I want to read it to you. Oh, by the way, uh, in the Jewish world, women had no space to publicly pray or prophesy. In fact, there was a dividing wall. In, the, in big Jewish synagogues, there's a wall. I've been to one where there's a wall down the middle. The women sit on one side, the men sit on the other, and the women have absolutely no part in the service, and so they'll often kind of visit over here while the men lead the service. That's why Paul later says, uh, when you gather to worship and your women are uh, having a conversation, remember you're now equal and you should be engaged in the service. But um, uh, so in the in the Jewish world, women had no no space to 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 be a part of the worship service. In fact, one of the prayers of a of a sincere Jewish rabbi was, "Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile or a woman." They were property, childbearing property. In the Roman world, particularly women of lower class were property of the men. And so Paul sets this on its head by saying, when you gather together to worship, celebrate that there are women and men together. The underlying point seems to be that in worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves. To honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. Paul's assumption is that in worship, when we worship together, creation is restored to its original form, the way God wanted it to be, and it points us forward to how it'll be in heaven. This service is intended to be a little slice of heaven to prepare us for ultimate heaven. If we are to reclaim that rightful and God-given authority over the world, it will come through worship. It doesn't come through domination or power. It comes through worship. Now, I'd like to just focus in on two verses here to kind of bring it together. In verse 3 it says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. 
That's verse 3. There are differences about what this head means. But notice it doesn't say anything about headship order. There is no sense of headship order in this passage. This is about equality, not a hierarchy. Hear that. Do you hear that? This passage does not talk about a hierarchy where it's God, and then Christ, and then man, and then woman. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is saying that when we gather together to worship, and we do that properly, and reflect and honor Jesus, there is an equality, but a uniqueness as we gather as men and women. That word head, that word is, I I looked at other places where that word head is used, and it literally means the source of life. So there are some who say that Christ is a, our life comes from Christ. Uh, Man was created first and then women, so man is the head of woman, but God is the head of everything. The the verse is literally written like this in Greek, uh, transliterated. I want, however, you to know that of every man, the head which Christ head now of the woman. And you could almost sense in this passage that, that uh, Paul is saying the head of us all is Christ, of both man and woman, is Christ. That is what Paul is saying, actually. Now notice also then in verse uh, uh, 11. In the Lord, however... Woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through women, through woman, and all things come from God. It's time we kind of lay those things down that we've allowed to separate us. White, black, nationalities. We've allowed those things to infiltrate our churches and separate us. The call in this passage is as we publicly gather and worship, we are called to reflect in this kind of radical equality, in the gender, in embracing the fact that God created man and woman, and the fact that together we are called to empower each other in our world. If anything in this passage is about power, it's that, and, and I, here's where I want to return to the uh, Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, all power is given to me. Who gave Jesus that power? Who gave Jesus that power? Who gave it? God! God gave Jesus the power to operate on the world, and then he stepped back and said, now you take it. When Jesus leaves the world, he gives it to his disciples and then the church. In the same way, Those of us who think we have power should give it away and empower other people. So as Christ empowers us, we are called to empower, maybe as men, our wives, our children, empower them to be something greater. And together embrace the idea that Jesus is our head. Now what does this say about how providence should practice this passage. Well, we'll talk about that in the future. But I want, I, I want us to see the beauty of this. The beauty of this. 
There's something so beautiful here where, where he says, you know what, in your veiled heads, in the fact that we wear something on our heads, you, you reflect the power of God and you reflect this equality. In the fact that you don't wear something on your head, men, you reflect the power of God and you're saying, I'm willing to lay my power down and give it up and, and I'm equal with each other, whether I wear a Rolex or Louis Vuitton or uh, thrift store clothing. We're all one. And those things that divide us should no longer divide us. And in our world, one of the things that has divided us, and we need to repent of this, is whether we wear coverings or not. And, and what choices we make as providence, I'm going to leave lay on the table, except to say this. Let's not be so arrogant as to say that we either have had a corner on the truth and we're just a little bit better than all the other Christians in the world. That, that's divisive. Or to say, well, all those people who wear that are just a, a little bit behind in times. In the same way, that's divisive. How about we gather together around Scripture and say, what does it really say when we gather for public worship and prayer? What, is it, what should it look like? Because Paul is setting out something, a, a way that this should look like in our, in our worship services. Let's stand together. And we should wrestle, I want to say this yet, we should wrestle equally with each part of this passage and one of those parts is the, the space that we have traditionally given to women to operate in our churches. That should be wrestled with as much as whether we should wear the veil or not because it is a part of the passage. And we are committed to this, not what we think should, we should do. We're committed to this. Let's pray. I should have mentioned this um, during the announcements and put my mind, but at the end of the, at the, end of the sermon here, then we're going we're gonna to take a, a little bit of time and talking about our next steps as a congregation regarding the head covering, where we're at with that. So didn't forget... Um, that we had talked about this, that that will come at the end of, at the after the sermon here. So this morning I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 23. I wonder how many of you could quote Psalm 23. I, I, as, I was, as I was going through this, I don't know, was this one of the first passages that I memorized or not, but it's so incredibly familiar, I think to all of us. Testing? Am I on now? Sorry about that. I'm not going to repeat. I'm sure I talk loud enough that you can hear me without it. Um, anyway, but this is just an incredibly beautiful psalm, and sometimes when we're so familiar with a, with a portion of Scripture, we kind of we kind of lose maybe the, the beauty of it. And so recently, as I, I was reading through this psalm, there was something in it that struck me. And you can notice it while, when we read it then here in just a little bit. But the first, the first part of this psalm, or this song, I think, that David writes, it's, he's like he's talking to himself. Do you ever have to preach to yourself? Speak truth to yourself? Speak truth into your own life? 
I think that, that's kind of what I hear David doing. And in the latter part, he switches and he, he begins talking to his shepherd. I think we probably all know who David was. I think we all know he grew up as a shepherd boy out in, out in the fields with his sheep. I think he was an incredibly good shepherd. And so the language that David used as he writes here, as does so much of Scripture, is language that he's incredibly familiar with. And so as, as I read through this psalm, I think of, I, I, tried, I tried to picture David as he's out with his sheep. Now, if, you're, if you don't have any farmer instinct in you, it might not make sense. But if you have any kind of livestock or sheep, the, when when I, I picture David sitting on maybe sitting on a rock somewhere and he's looking out and he sees all his sheep and there's there's great pride there's great joy in seeing a healthy flock of sheep that is in his care and his sheep are content they're happy because they know they're well cared for they know they're protected you know remember David what killed a bear and a lion in the in protecting his sheep so he was a good shepherd so there's all this, these things going through his mind, and I picture him there beginning to pen the words to this psalm. And if, and if you've ever tried to write your thoughts down, you write them. It's like, ah, it doesn't sound right. So you erase it, you rewrite it, and you rewrite it, and you rewrite it, and you rewrite it. Until finally he comes down to Psalm 23. So listen, or follow along. I'm reading from the ESV here. This is David's song as he is sitting there observing his sheep, and he says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Now, I don't pretend to try to know what was going through David's mind as he, as he wrote this, but the more that we can understand the mindset of a shepherd, the more, the deeper and the richer his words here become. A shepherd is one who provides nourishment for his sheep. He's the one who provides the care, the health care for his sheep. He provides the, yeah, the, the nourishment. Um, he provides the protection for his sheep. And, and he has complete ownership of his sheep. Sheep are followers, okay? Um, they're incredibly, yeah, they're, they're, I'll just say they're followers, okay? There's very rarely like a leader in a flock. It's always they, they follow someone else. So we have a, oh, I could get caught up telling stories. We have a guardian dog with our sheep because I'm not with them 24-7. So we have a guardian dog with our sheep, and they trust that sheep or that dog implicitly. She doesn't let them go in front of her 
But once she goes into a field or she goes through a path somewhere, then the sheep will go because they know, oh, well, she checked it out. It's safe to go here. So that's, that's the, the nature of sheep themselves. <clears throat> but what I, wanna, what I want us to be thinking about today and what I want to focus on is simply the very first phrase of this psalm that says, The Lord is my shepherd. So, the Lord is the one who nourishes me. He's the one who provides for me. He's the one who protects me. He has ownership of my life. I trust Him implicitly. And on and on and on and on you go. Because on that very first phrase where David says, the Lord is my shepherd, every other line in, that, in this song or psalm is reflection because it's because of this. So, he's re- He restores my soul. Why? Because he's my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? Because he's my shepherd. And I am following my shepherd. So who is this shepherd that David's talking about? And who is this shepherd that then we should also be calling our shepherd? Well, I think that's a really simple, a simple answer, right? He's talking about God. He's talking about Jehovah, the God of Israel. And then Jesus comes along when he was here on earth and he says, I am the good shepherd. But do you ever, do you ever stop and think about how absolutely amazing that is? That the God of the universe, the creator and the sustainer of everything, is your shepherd? You can call him my shepherd, each one of us, and he leads you and he leads me. It's easy for us... We talk about the humanity of Jesus when he was here, and I'll, I'll mention that a little bit later. But there's, I would pose that there's, there's two reasons why God should have and be able to call us his sheep and us his shepherd and have complete ownership and lordship of our lives, if you will. Because notice David said, the Lord is my shepherd. That, the Lord is, I'm not my own. I now belong to him. So why, or how, how does that work? It's easy for us to lose how majestic and, and amazing that our Savior, our Jesus, our Shepherd really is. But listen to this language. This is language that Paul uses in Colossians 15. And think of this as you talking about your Shepherd. This is my Shepherd. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was placed was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What does that do to you when you say, that is my shepherd? Do you catch the, the, the majestic language that Paul uses when he's talking about Jesus, our Savior, and the one who we can call our shepherd? If that's not enough for you, go home this afternoon and watch um, Louis Giglio's talk on if the earth were a golf ball. 
don't know how many of you have ever seen it, but it's just you can watch it in the shortened version. Absolutely powerful. He says, like, if the, if the earth were a golf ball, and I'm a little speck on this golf ball, and then he takes you out and through the galaxies, and the further you get away from earth, I mean, it doesn't take long till the earth is completely invisible. I'm, I cannot see it because, and we've only begun to explore the vastness of the universe, and it makes, quickly makes you feel really, really small. And yet, this amazing God sees you and says, I want to be your shepherd. Will you be my sheep? This vastness, this greatness of our God, and we can call him my shepherd. The declaration that David makes and that we can make that the Lord is my shepherd is only made possible because of the divine intervention of Jesus Christ on the cross and the ensuing indwelling of his Holy Spirit. It immediately implies that there is an intimate and profound relationship that happens between the Creator and His created. T. Philip uh, Keller says it this way, It links a lump of common clay to divine destiny. It means a mere mortal becomes the cherished object of divine intelligence. I want, just, I want us to latch onto that language. It means a mere mortal, you and I, become the cherished object of divine intelligence. A shepherd truly, truly cherishes and cares for his sheep. And that is the kind of love that our shepherd has for us. The very fact that he is our creator and the one who brought us into existence and the one who sustains us should be enough for us to acknowledge His ownership, His lordship of our lives. And yet, how often do we deny and flee from that? If you ever noticed, Scripture is incredibly full of accounts where it refers to us as sheep. I don't know what that does to you or what that makes you think or feel, but this, the, the comparisons, the similarities are absolutely profound. Some of them in beautiful ways, some of them in not quite so beautiful ways. But there's a reason, I think, that that kind of language is used throughout Scripture. Because sheep are like us. Sheep can be stubborn. They can be habitual. They have this mob instinct. They always flock together. They do whatever the one in front of them has done. If I'm ever running my sheep through a gate and there's maybe a shadow or something across on the ground and a sheep sees that shadow and it freaks out a little bit and it jumps, every sheep that comes behind them will jump. They have no clue why, but they do it. They jump and they have no idea why. And I wonder if we're any that much different from that sometimes. Sheep are fearful, they're timid, and they're dependent on their shepherd all of which are distinct and profound lessons for us to learn. Though He is our Creator and Sustainer, we still have stubborn, sinful self that we insist, where we insist that sometimes we know better than our shepherd. Listen to the, one of the ways that Scripture talks about us as sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Despite our turning away, despite all of that, Christ still chooses 
you and I, as his sheep, and purchasing us with his own life, and he delights in caring for you and for me. So our shepherd, that's who our shepherd is, and he is kind, he is good, and he is able. I think we're very familiar with another passage in John 10 where Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You can have a flock of sheep that are under the ownership of one, one guy, and they can be sickly looking, they can be parasite ridden, they can look awful. And then you can place those sheep in the care of another shepherd, another owner, who is doting, he's caring, he's observant. And you see those exact same sheep who are struggling to survive begin to absolutely thrive. And my point with that is that a sheep, the condition, the contentment, the restfulness of a sheep is a direct reflection of who his shepherd is. So who is your shepherd? Is the Lord your shepherd? Is he my shepherd? You see, when Jesus came, and this is, so we we saw Jesus as this great, majestic, the creator and the sustainer, and then he comes to earth, and we see a child who was born into humble, impoverished conditions. He did not receive any special educational opportunities in his childhood. He didn't amass uh, huge amounts of wealth. He had no social, political, or military power. Yet no person has ever had so much, so, such a deep impact in the history of the world as our Savior when he came to earth. Countless of millions of people have gone from being emaciated, struggling to survive kind of sheep to sheep who are thriving under the care of the good shepherd. And so the one who says, I am the good shepherd, the one that David proudly declares is my shepherd, and I hope that each one of us proudly declares as that is my shepherd, that same shepherd who created us, who sustains us, and who buys us back and purchases us back into his fold with his own blood, has the right to declare that we are his, and now I am no longer my own. It's different now than it was in the past, but even 50, 60 years ago, if, if a guy would buy a flock of sheep, probably even more recent than that, than that um, if someone would buy a flock of sheep and they would bring them into his herd or into his flock, he would take each of, each of the sheep that he bought and he would take a sharp knife and he would bring it up and he would, they would lay their ear on a wooden block and they would make a distinct mark on the ear of that sheep. Nowadays, you just use ear tags, but they're, they're federally registered or, or nationally registered ear tags. But you would, they would take that ear and they, each flock had a distinct mark in his ear. And so your mark could be, mine, so I'd say a CH. I would basically carve a CH in the ear of that U, a painful process, but a necessary process and a a process of which the owner says that you are now mine. I bought you with a price 
And it's an actual, it's a loving act that a shepherd does to his sheep because he takes tremendous pride in the ownership of this sheep. And in, that is a that painful process. But there's a, of marking, a mark of ownership. And so Jesus himself, I would suggest, has the right to place his mark on us. There's a, there's a beautiful picture of this found in Exodus 21. When a, if a, someone had a slave who was with them, so you could have a, your slave for six years, the seventh year, that slave would be set free. But at, at that point, seven-year mark, this slave loved, has come to love the people who are caring for him, who he's working for, employed for, with He's come to love them. They love him. And there's a relationship that is built. That slave could, of his own free will, choose and say, I want to stay with this family. And so they would take that slave over to a door, and they would place his earlobe up against the doorpost, and then they'd take an awl, and they would punch a hole straight through his earlobe. And that would be a mark that says, that, this, that I forever belong and am a member of this household. It's a profound, profound picture. We, as Christ's flock, bear the mark of His cross in our lives. It dramatically changes the way I think, the way I process things, the way I live and it, that mark should identify those, should identify whose we are, and that Christ now, my good shepherd, has complete control and authority over my life. So the question that I ask myself, and that you can ask yourself, is does Jesus have that complete authority over my life? Am I completely surrendered to his direction, to his leading as my shepherd? Do I find freedom and peace as I follow my shepherd? Am I wholly content to be under his direction for my life? If so, then I think we can proclaim with David with tremendous joy and admiration because of who our shepherd is, we can declare with him that the Lord is my shepherd and we bear his mark with boldness and with joy and with dignity and we want the world to see whose we are. Who better to care for you than the one who holds the world in his hand has that ability who purchases you back after you have turned away from him and he rejoices over you now as the special object of his affection. Who better to care for you? So just a couple of thoughts in closing. So what does this mean for you? What does it mean for me today? What does it mean for us as a church even as we're processing through some, some of these some of these things. What, what does it mean? How does that actually become a part of our life? Let me, just, let me just say this in closing, that we have a shepherd who is completely trustworthy. 
There is no question that you can completely trust the shepherd of your soul. Any shepherd who is willing to pay the ultimate price to purchase back a stubborn, selfish, fearful, and sometimes foolish sheep like me can be trusted to have my best at heart. So what he leads us through, what he guides us through, it's the best for me, it's the best for you. And the fact of the matter is each one of us can trust him to lead us personally as individuals, but we can also then trust him to lead the person that is sitting beside us in your chair, in your pew, the person that you're walking, walking next with. We can trust him to lead ourself, me, you can trust him to lead the person beside you, and we can trust him to lead us as a body, as a church going forward. And I find just tremendous amounts of peace and rest in that. We have a shepherd who is guiding us, who is here, and he will guide. And it's up to us, to we, do we follow him? The shepherd came, the, a, a shepherd brings life. Jesus came to bring life to people. He came to bring life to us. And a good shepherd will bring life out of his people. And as his sheep, we reflect our shepherd to each other. And so I want to close with, may our words and our actions bring life, the life that our shepherd brings, may we bring that to one another and to our world today. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you so much that we can call